millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. People have been dreaming and scheming about the day that we humans will be able to travel to Mars and maybe even live there for over a century. And it's getting closer to becoming a reality, with predictions a few brave souls will be making the return trip sometime in the 2030s. But what if the technological challenge of getting to Mars and back isn't the biggest obstacle we have to overcome? Could our human relationships, our ability to manage stress and conflict and solve problems together after being cooped up for months on end, could that be another major hurdle too? To test this out, NASA's been sending teams of volunteers to live for long periods in an isolation dome on a Hawaiian volcano. The project is called High Seas, and it's been running for about the past five years. The Habitat, produced by Gimlet Media and presented by Lynn Levy, is the story of one of these groups who started a year-long stint in the dome back in 2015. The team of six had audio recorders to capture their experiences and they're about to enter their new home for the very first time. All right, guys. Welcome to Mars. Hi, Laura. (laughs) Thank you all. See you in a year. See you in a year. So we outside the habitat. Happy Valentine's Day, Happy St. Patrick's Day, 4th of July. And there is a lot of noise, lots of people. Bye, guys. We wave goodbye. And then we enter. And then, well, then it's silent. And we look around and... We look at each other and we know that, you know, for a year it will be just just the six of us. And always here, always in this place. This place is the habitat. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. 13, 14, 15, and this is Cyprian, 16, walking across the habitat, 18, counting 19, his steps as he goes. 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33. 33 steps. That's how far you can walk inside the habitat. From one end to the other, the whole thing is just 33 steps. It's smaller than a tennis court. It's smaller than some kindergarten classrooms. But for the High Seas crew, this is the whole damn world. After I said goodbye to the crew, I went back to New York and waited. And after a little while, they started sending me recordings from inside. I send them a question, and they send me a recording. And one of the first things I wanted to know was just... What is it like in there? 
Um, today we'll just give you a tour of the hub. So, the habitat is round. Most of it is just one round room. And in the center of the room is a staircase. And it leads to a mezzanine. Um, I will speak, um, I will be quiet now because there are people sleeping. On this mezzanine, you have seven doors. One is a bathroom door. Um, and the six of the doors are our individual compartments. These individual compartments are like dignified closets. These things are really freaking tiny. That's Tristan, another member of the crew. So if I'm at the door where I come in, my whole room is, let's see, let's see, go here, it's like one, two, three. Oh. And yeah, after three steps in, you hit your head on the dome. So it's, it's quite, a, quite small, but it's very, it's very cozy. Each room comes furnished with this toddler-sized furniture, a teeny-weeny desk, an itty-bitty bed. It's hard to imagine an adult human sleeping in here. But there's just not much room on a rocket ship. So everything that goes to Mars will have to be small. It's going to be as uh, tight as you can get it and still make things work. Anyway, I'm getting naked. Close your eyes. Every little thing about life in the habitat is designed to mimic something about life on Mars. So out there, water is going to be scarce. It's going to be precious. And in here, it's got to be scarce and precious, too. Okay, where will I put the microphone? To get an idea of just how scarce, I asked Cyprian to record himself taking a shower. Um, I hope you realize that your questions are very weird. But, well, <clears throat> it's not up to me to judge. Okay, so I am, um, well, in the, in the shower. There are buckets on the ground so that we can collect water because then we use it to mop the ground. And there is a timer so that we can make sure that we don't use too much water. That beep is the timer. Cyprian gets about 30 seconds to wash himself. While he does that... Oh my, Lynn, that's cold. I will use the 30 seconds to tell you as much as I can about water in space. So, on the International Space Station, they reuse every drop of water they can because water is so precious. So all the water in their breath, the vapor, all the sweat, their tears, everything, it all gets recycled, cleaned, reused, returned to them. They even recycle the mouse pee from the lab mice on the ship and turn it into... Oh, and there's the timer. That's all Cyprian gets. Like 30 ice-cold seconds. <laughs> My body's a blue and red right now. Um, <laughs> so I'm freezing to death and I will <laughs> go back to my room under the blanket where it's warm. Anyway, I was saying, out there, every drop of water is precious. Because if you run out, you can't just get more. And the situation on Mars won't be much better. Yes, there is some water on Mars in the form of ice, but there are no lakes or rivers. It never really rains or snows. Everything you take for granted on Earth, forget it. And some of what the crew is doing in the dome is figuring out ways to deal with that. Christiana, who's a physicist, is looking for ways to extract water from the ground. Carmel, who loves being in nature, is trying to grow plants under these weird Mars-like conditions. 
and Cyprian, the biologist, is experimenting with these little green specks, this bacteria that he thinks could help people grow their own food on Mars. But for now, the only way to survive a mission to Mars is to bring all your food with you. Turn on the lights. On the first floor of the hab, there's a storage room, packed floor to ceiling. With giant bins of um, just all the food. There's enough food here to last a long, long time. It's all stuff that would survive a trip to Mars. Everything is powdered or vacuum-packed or dried. Ground beef. Dried. Turkey. Dried. Cheddar. Dried. This one doesn't have a label, but it's full of dehydrated applesauce. I had no idea you could dehydrate so much weird shit. Natural burgundy wine powder. Almost all the food in the habitat is food that's had the water sucked out of it. So if you want a nice ripe peach in here, you can have one. But it'll be dehydrated. And not the mouthfeel you usually think of when you think peach. (coughs) Peach dust. Sitting in my apartment listening to these early recordings, I start to get very, very curious about what this food actually tastes like. And then one day, my producer Peter tells me it's possible to mail order the same kind of food that the crew is eating inside the habitat. Which is how we become the proud owners of a jumbo-sized can of dehydrated turkey chunks. Sounds like Lucky Charms, kind of. Like a little softer, but basically Lucky Charms. Inside the can are many, many half-inch cubes, the color and texture of chalk. The idea is to rehydrate them and bake them like a real turkey. So we add water. It's honestly just like doing the Rice Krispies noise. You hear it? Oh, my God. (laughs) We let the cubes sit in the water until the whole thing becomes kind of like a turkey slush. When, like, the mama bird throws up her food for the baby birds, that's what it looks like. Oh, God, it really does. I try my very best to shape it into a turkey-like shape. I guess. Is that sort of, is that how drumsticks go? Yeah. And then we bake. And 40 minutes later, we have something. Hmm. It's like wood pulp. I mean, that's, it's like, what is that called? Press board? It's like dorm room furniture. It's dorm room furniture. Like, vaguely turkeyish dorm room furniture. After three bites of this stuff, I can't swallow another bite. The idea of eating food like this every day for a year is pretty much the grossest thing I can imagine. Until Mission Day 59, when I get a recording describing something even grosser. Maybe hear it echoey a little bit. This is the downstairs bathroom. This is Tristan again. He's standing next to one of the high seas toilets. Now, obviously, there is no indoor plumbing on Mars. And the habitat is designed to simulate that. The smell is not great. Uh, We've got our composting toilet right there. So instead of flushing everything away like you guys all do back home, it just uh, sits in there. The composting toilet is basically a big barrel. You do your business in the barrel, and your shit drops into a little drawer. It's like a sock drawer, but for poop. And in the drawer, the poop gets dried out, sanitized, and turned into these neat little chunks. 
that can be used as fertilizer. When it works right. But one day, one of the toilets stopped working right. Tristan and Shay were on cleanup duty. So they put on every piece of protective gear they could find. So uh, Shay and I had our cotton scrubby things on and goggles, and I had my Respro face mask, gloves, the whole bit. Even booties for our shoes, actually. Felt very much like a nurse. And marched into the bathroom. They opened the drawer under the toilet, which was supposed to contain those neat little chunks. It was just, uh, oh, like if you can imagine a 10-pound tray of the worst fudge you've ever seen in your life, that's basically what we were dealing with. In this moment, Tristan and Shay entered a grand tradition of toilet troubles in astronaut history. You know, once you get out of lunar orbit, you can do a lot of things. You can power down, you can, you can, you can do a lot of things. You're listening to The Fine Men of Apollo 10. This was recorded in 1969. Their ship had just finished orbiting the moon, and they were headed triumphantly back to Earth. Oh, who did it? Who did what? Who did it? Give me a napkin quick. There's a turf. I didn't do it. It ain't one of mine. Give me a napkin quick. There's a turd floating around. That is the sound of an escaped poop nugget, freed from the bounds of gravity, floating through the Apollo spaceship. I, I don't think it's one of mine. Uh, mine was a little more sticky than that. The Apollo program was a triumph in many, many ways, but pooping was not one of them. Any astronaut who needed to poop had to float over to one side of the ship, ask the other astronaut dudes to look away, strip completely naked, hold a little plastic bag up to his butthole, deposit his poop in the bag, seal the bag up, and get dressed again. The whole thing could take over an hour. And obviously, it did not always work that well. Here's another goddamn turd. What's the matter with you guys? Here, give me a... (laughs) God almighty. Turns out, the whole space program has been a parade of poop and pee-related mishaps. Alan Shepard, the very first American shot into space, pissed his pants on the launch pad before he could even lift off. NASA hadn't bothered to give him any kind of bathroom option. They figured he could just hold it. But the launch took longer than expected, and Shepard, a fallible human man with a fallible human bladder, couldn't. But that's a drop in the bucket compared to what astronaut Gordon Cooper experienced in 1963. Cooper was on a solo flight. He was supposed to spend a day and a half in orbit, perform a few experiments, and then come home. Mission Control was flying the ship. But near the end of the flight, the ship suddenly malfunctioned. The altitude indicators failed. The stabilizers failed. And most alarmingly, the autopilot failed leaving Cooper to find his way home like some kind of ancient mariner, using his knowledge of the constellations to navigate. Turns out, his urine bag leaked. Little drops of pee got into the ship's controls and short-circuited everything. Back in the habitat, Tristan and Shay did not have to land an out-of-control spaceship, but they did have to get the downstairs toilet working again. So... They grabbed a couple of plastic shovels, jammed their arms blindly into the space under the toilet. Shoulder deep into this thing. And started digging. And essentially just put as much of it as we could into old coffee cans. 
and there was a solid nine or ten coffee cans worth to give you a idea of the horror. Um, eventually got it clean and put everybody on a bathroom schedule. So boys downstairs, girls upstairs, and hopefully we won't overload the system again. The producer and host of The Habitat, Lynn Levy, told me via Skype why this mission to recreate Mars on Earth really grabbed her interest. High Seas is this very unusual experiment in that they created this whole self-contained world. And you just don't run across that very often in life. And I think that to me felt like something that just had the makings of a fascinating story, that it was, first of all, that it's a year-long experiment. It has a beginning and a middle and an end, just like any good story. And it has this this fascinating setting, and that all the things that are going to happen are going to happen in this one place. And I just felt a very strong desire to be in that place. And since I couldn't personally be in that place, the next best thing would be to be able to hear that place. Sometimes I would would get a very short recording, and I think, oh, God, I wish... I wish I could have been there to ask follow-up questions. I wish they would have said more, but, you know, there was no way to do that because they were in seclusion. They were supposed to be on Mars, and and I couldn't talk to them. They couldn't have phone calls, and I certainly couldn't have visitors. And so I would get little tiny recordings of audio, and I just think, gosh, if I had just been there, I could have asked a follow-up question, but you can't really. And then other times I would get massive, massive recordings, which was really great in the sense that I had a lot to work with, but also meant that I would sometimes sit there and listen to literally two straight hours of chewing. So it it certainly made me feel like I was there, which was great, but it it was a lot of chewing. (laughs) (laughs) How did the setup work? So they had a recorder, one recorder between the six of them uh, inside this, this habitat. And how did the recording work? Was it running 24-7? Was somebody in charge of it? Did they take it in turns? No, 24-7 would have been amazing, although it would have been even more chewing. Um, no, it was basically, they, they. I ultimately ended up giving them two recorders and they shared it and people would make a recording when they wanted to make a recording and then pass the recorders along. You know, I basically would ask them a question once a week and uh, sometimes everybody would respond. Sometimes just a few people would respond. Sometimes they would also record something else that they thought was interesting that week, and then they would send the recordings to me. I can remember there was this reality TV show called Big Brother when I was in England, and there's been similar spin-offs all over the world now, where there was like a closet that people would go into and record these kind of (laughs) confessional things about the other people. I got that kind of feeling at times, that people were using the microphone as a bit of a confessional device. It's interesting. Yeah, I think I certainly didn't set out to do that. But I think any time that you are sort of in a high stress situation and you have an opportunity to talk, it can become a little bit of a of a confession or a therapy experience. Also, I found that when people recorded together, that was really great because then they would just sort of start to banter and it was really a nice opportunity for them to say what they were feeling and the recorder wasn't so important. Okay, this was Christiana um, shaking her milk. Shaking? Well, stirring? Well, stirring, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and this was Cyprian trying to speak English. Oh, and this is Tristan speaking French. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Say something. Something. <laughs> it must be difficult too, because you must have your favorites almost. You must have people that you hear and they're particularly, you know, lighthearted, having lots of fun. And you must tend to kind of perhaps like them a little bit more than other characters. I think I 
had warm feelings towards everybody in this just in a different way. I think when you spend a year listening to people, you can't help but feel connected to them. And I think, you know, everybody had, there were moments with everybody where I was sort of like, oh, that was like so beautiful. And I feel so privileged that they told me that. I think like with Cyprian is one of the characters and he's somebody who can be a little bit reserved sometimes. But then one day he said, all right, I'm going to, I'll play the, the ukulele and sing for you and I'm going to record it. Ah. <laughs> About eight weeks into the experiment, mission day 58, Cyprian starts sending me recordings of himself playing the ukulele. That's a E. Anyway. And that just felt so amazing. I was like, oh, he's letting me into his world. It's pr- it was pretty great. Of course, also, there are times when people crack the same joke over and over, and I felt just like the slightest glimmer of what the kind of irritation that they were probably feeling with each other. Yeah, you definitely get that sense that there are certain repeating themes through it. I was wondering about you and the way maybe it's changed your way of being confined with other people as well. Has it given you any insights? Has it made you a better kind of plane passenger, for example? I think it's given me admiration for people who can survive these confined environments. I think I really, I I just don't have any experiences that line up with this at all. I mean, I do get irritated on planes. I do get irritated on six hour plane rides at people who are just like loudly eating pistachios. And that's nothing. I mean, that is just nothing compared to this. So I think, yeah, I think my level of, of admiration for people who do these confined experiences, not just in this experiment, but people in it who, you know, who go to the Arctic, people on the International Space Station, anybody, oh, people on submarines, God, that one is the worst. I think it's, you know, it's it's just made me really understand how tough this can be to take. Lynn Levy, the host and producer of The Habitat, and thanks to Kevin Turner, Hayley Shaw and Victoria Barner at Gimlet Media for letting me play that to you. And you can find The Habitat wherever you get your podcasts, or there are more details on how to listen at our website. That's radionz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.